0: Welcome to 5 Things About, I'm Chris Hatzis. 5 Things About is for you and your inner curious cat. The part of you that loves to know what others know about experiences, inventions, ideas, people and places. Today we explore 5 things about type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes affects 1.2 million Australian adults and 400 million people globally. But those figures are rising fast and there's an urgent need to develop new approaches to treat people with this disease. Professor Matthew Watt is head of the Department of Physiology School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Matthew Watt and his team have stumbled across a key liver protein that reduces blood glucose levels. This discovery could lead to more effective diabetes drugs and a re-engineering of this protein would be an improvement of current treatments. Dr Andy Horvath sat down for a chat with Professor Matthew Watt.
1: Now, would you describe yourself and your lab as molecule detectives?
2: Uh, That's an interesting way of describing the lab. I would describe our laboratory as uh, a group of physiologists who are more interested in understanding the development of disease, uh, and we use very complex tools to identify new molecules that might be important in the development of those diseases.
1: What's one of the diseases your lab is actually investigating?
2: One of our primary focuses is uh, type 2 diabetes. So our interest is really in understanding how the complications or or how the preceding factors that lead to diabetes do in fact develop. Now, what I mean by that is that type 2 diabetes occurs through two major dysfunctions in our body. The first is uh, resistance to the effects of insulin, And that's important because insulin promotes the uptake of glucose into cells to maintain blood glucose levels. And the second defect is an inability to produce sufficient amounts of insulin in the body. We're particularly interested in the first point. So how do cells become resistant to the actions of insulin?
1: Okay, so let's start with diabetes. How does diabetes type 2, and how is it different to type 1, endanger the body?
2: Okay, so you, you you rightly point out that there are two major types of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is characterized by a complete inability of an individual to produce insulin. The difference with type 2 diabetes is that it um, has two major defects. The first is resistance to the actions of insulin resulting in impaired uptake of glucose into tissues. And over time, um, there is uh, an inability to produce sufficient amount of insulin, Uh, for the body now when you talk about complications type 2 diabetes complications arise due to uh, chronically elevated levels of glucose which is known as hyperglycemia and these complications um, are very varied over time and they take a number of years to develop so uh, a patient with type 2 diabetes for example is three to four times more likely to um, have heart disease stroke or kidney failure Um, we know that hyperglycemia in diabetes is the leading cause of preventable blindness in Australia. And we also know that individuals with type two diabetes are much more likely to have amputations in the range of about 15 fold more than individuals without diabetes. And I guess one thing we don't talk about often is the higher incidence of depression and anxiety in patients with type two diabetes with up to a third reporting these symptoms. And that's often associated due to an inability or their constant worry about managing their blood glucose which is a minute to minute day-to-day proposition for them.
1: What's the actual incidence of type 2 diabetes? It's risen over the past decades, hasn't it? What is it per capita?
2: Type two, there's about 440 million people worldwide with type 2 diabetes and about 1.2 million uh, with type 2 diabetes in Australia. Now, the major issue with the incidence is that, right, as you rightly point out, that incidence is increasing. And that's because type 2 diabetes is very closely linked to the incidence of obesity. And as we know, um, the incidence of overweight and obesity are increasing. So these diseases tend to go hand in hand. Um, So it's becoming such an issue that it's now predicted that type 2 diabetes may reach somewhere in the vicinity of 700 million people worldwide by 2045.
1: You've stumbled across something in your lab that may actually open doors to a new type of diabetes drug. How did you stumble upon it and what is it?
2: We're super excited by the discovery of a protein um, called SMOC1. I won't tell you the full name because it's long and confusing. Now, smoc one is a naturally uh, produced protein by the liver. And we discovered this somewhat serendipitously. And what we were doing, what we knew is that the liver secretes um, many proteins. And we know that protein secretion from the liver can impact our ability of other cells to take up glucose. So the liver will secrete these proteins and then uh, cells in the body, such as the muscle and the adipose tissue... Uh, can then take up glucose more freely. But what we didn't know was what these proteins were. So we embarked on a very large scale study trying to identify all the proteins that are secreted by the liver and then trying to understand which one of those proteins might in fact help other cells take up glucose in the body. In doing this, we discovered the SMOC1 protein and that led to a, a wonderful journey from there. Um, trying to identify um, how SMOC 1 works and whether we can use that as a, a therapeutic agent for the treatment of type 2 diabetes.
1: I know the molecule is called SMOC 1, but I need to know what it stands for.
2: Okay, Andy, this is a confusing one. It's called Spark Related Modular Calcium Binding Protein 1. That's why we call it SMOC 1.
1: Okay, it sounds like it's a kindergarten clothing item. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no clothing. Now, you did these studies in mice. So the SMOC1 protein is a mouse liver protein that seems to lower the blood glucose. Will it translate to humans?
2: Absolutely. And it's, it's a very good question. And it's a, it's a very important question, Andy, that you ask with respect to all discoveries that we make in biomedical science. Is this relevant to human populations? In this case, we know that SMOC1 is indeed um, produced by the liver in human patients. And we also know that the levels of SMOC one protein are reduced in the blood of individuals that have prediabetes. And so what this is telling us is that SMOC one is likely to be important in uh, humans for blood glucose control. What we also know is that when we make a version of human SMOC one and we treat human liver cells with that, that SMOK1 can work Uh, by improving the ability um, of those cells not to secrete glucose. So it's effective in human cells. So we're very bullish about um, the prospect of SMOC1 being a viable therapy for patients with type 2 diabetes.
1: Okay, so if we engineer a drug that is based on this particular protein, doesn't elevating the levels of one other molecule put other things out of balance? Like Could it have knock-on effects?
2: Yeah, that's another great question. And one of the biggest issues that you face with drug development is safety. So you need to make sure not only that your drug is effective, but that your drug is safe. And so what we've been able to do in this domain is to make an engineered form of SMOCK1. It's called SMOC one FC. And in really simple terms, what we can do is we can increase the life of the SMOC one protein in the blood. So typically SMOC one Uh, will be cleared from your bloodstream within, say, half an hour to an hour. And this wouldn't be overly effective as a treatment. What we can do is add this FC to make SMOCK1FC to increase the life of the protein so it's effective for longer. Now, what we've seen in these studies so far is that this SMOCK1FC can improve glucose levels or can lower glucose levels in type 2 diabetic mice. We also show that the SMOCK1 FC can lower fat levels in the livers of these mice, which is a good thing, and it can reduce cholesterol. So far, we haven't found any what we would describe as off-target effects of SMOCK1. So to date, it seems like it's going to be safe. But of course, more studies need to be done to prove this definitively.
1: This is exciting because it could go in any direction, couldn't
2: it? You're right. So it's we're, we're sort of at the crossroads. So We've made, we've done four to five, probably six years of work to get to this point now where we are supremely confident that SMOC one can be used to treat diabetes in mouse models. That's unequivocal. Um, The next step now is to get this into human trials. Now, this is probably the major jump for all uh, basic biomedical scientists. Um, We certainly don't have the resources to be able to conduct such clinical trials, Um, So by way of example, um, if you were developing a type 2 diabetes drug, you need to go through a series of trials which range from phase 1 to phase 3 for a diabetes drug, and then you need to do what's called a cardiovascular safety trial. All up, this could cost somewhere in the vicinity of $500 million from the start to the end. So you can imagine my tiny little budget uh, would not support these ventures. So the challenge for us now is to um, show our uh, data to um, representatives from the pharmaceutical industry in the hope that they will leverage um, off our findings uh, and continue to develop our product for um, therapy in humans
1: surely that old chestnut of diet and exercise is a better way to go than drugs.
2: Yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. And so um, my background, Andy, is as an exercise physiologist. So I was trained essentially to educate people on the benefits of exercise and a healthy lifestyle across various domains, including fitness and health, for example. So I advocate a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet in the management of disease. What we do know is that if... Um, patients can maintain a low-calorie diet, and it doesn't really matter if it's high-fat, low-fat, high-glucose, low-glucose, there's a full debate about that, but if the diet is fairly low-calorie and you perform physical activity for about 150 minutes a week, that this is likely to be effective in managing glucose levels in most type 2 diabetes patients early in the disease. Now, what happens with time is that sometimes um, the diabetes uh, becomes so severe that diet or a lifestyle is not sufficient to manage it. The other point is that many patients just don't modify their diet and do enough exercise such that it's effective for treating their blood glucose. And it's at that point that their uh, physician will then recommend um, an oral uh, anti-hyperglycemic therapy, so an oral drug to manage their blood glucose.
1: Okay, so it sounds like we still need it. Well, you better go back to the lab soon. Um, does anyone in your lab have diabetes? And I'm always fascinated about whether or not lab members that you have actually have the disease they're working on.
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's not uncommon um, in across fields that people with a disease uh, will work on it. Um, in our laboratory at the moment, no one has type 2 diabetes yet. Um, of course, we don't know what their fate will be in the future. We do know that there um, uh, there's heritability in disease, such that if you have one parent um, with type two diabetes, that increases the risk of you getting type two diabetes by about twofold. And if you have two parents with type two diabetes, the risk is increased by about sixfold. And what we do know that in our lab, a number of individuals in our lab do have parents with diabetes. So you know these people are probably destined to either have um, impaired blood glucose control in time or develop type 2 diabetes.
1: What's your expected time frame for me interviewing you and congratulating you on starting the role of this new diabetes type 2 drug?
2: You know, that's something we get asked about often and that's a really common question across the whole field and not just in diabetes. That's a common question for all preclinical researchers who are who have hit this roadblock, which is to, to work towards clinical development. What we're really hoping for is if we get early and positive engagement from the pharmaceutical industry, that we should be able to develop something to the stage where we might be able to get it out in somewhere between, say, six to seven years from here.
1: Oh, you better send this podcast to everybody.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I tell you what, if you can send it to some people, some rich benefactors that uh, that might uh, think this is a good investment uh, and it's worthwhile uh, for the community, that would be fantastic.
0: Professor
1: Matthew Watt, thank you.
2: Thanks very much for your time, Andy
0: thank you to Professor Matthew Watt, Head of the Department of Physiology, School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. This was 5 Things About Type 2 Diabetes. 5 Things About was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 10, 2020. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Dr. Andy Horvath. Five Things About is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Five Things About.